0: Today, we're moving from that vision of the world to really looking at exactly who Jesus is, all right? In one particular way, and I think it's a way and 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 an important thing for us to realize with how we hear Jesus' words, all right? The overall thing for you to take away today is that Jesus is the smartest man to have ever lived, Jesus is the smartest man to have ever lived. I'll unpack that more as we go, but we're going to be right here in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. If you want to follow along with me, it'll be up here on the screen if you can see that or in your Bible. If you want to underline and mark it up like crazy, this is the end of what is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read this and pray. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken these words, and that 2,000 years later, we can hear them. We can understand them even in our own language, knowing that these were not originally spoken in English. But you have preserved your words, and we confess how quickly and how easily. We hear them and think that merely in our hearing them, we are obeying them. But today, would you help us Uh, to hear your words and to begin the process of founding our lives more and more on you, on your teaching, on your words, that we might have the kind of foundation that can hold us up in the storm of this world. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help each one of us to bring our true selves to this moment, to stand before you, Some of us are in the midst of the storm standing, some of us are in the wreckage post-storm. Some of us see a storm on the horizons, and we need to hear what you have to say about what it means to be human. So, Holy Spirit, be our help. Amen. All right. Uh, 12 years ago, I was playing basketball. I love basketball. Up until the pandemic, I was playing basketball three times a week with a group of people over at the YMCA here in West L.A. It's just so life-giving to me. Uh, Twelve years ago, though, when I was in college, uh, I tore my ACL. Tore my ACL. I was just cutting with the ball, and my knee buckled, fell down to the ground, ended up needing surgery. Now, um, surgery with an ACL, with a ligament repair, is really, really helpful, but guess what? in and of itself, it doesn't actually retrain your leg to work properly. The easy part is having someone else drill holes in your knee and replace your ligament that's torn. The hard part is the 12 months of physical therapy and exercise to get back to where you originally were. I did about two of those 12 months faithfully. (laughs) Um, the, the consequence of not listening to my doctor and not listening to my physical therapist was really, really extreme. My knee was still so debilitatingly painful. I'd be doing everyday things, let alone trying to like go out and play basketball, and my knee would start swelling up like crazy. I'd get these stabbing pains and sensations in it. Um, I did not listen to the authority that knew what was best for me and that helped me get to the point where, where I had the capacity to do something about my situation. And they, the physical therapist was guiding me through that process and encouraging me. And I just gave up. It wasn't because I just said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. It was the cares of life. It's hard to set aside an hour or five days a week to do exercises that feel like you're just laying on your back going like this. The mundane nature of listening to my physical therapist drove me crazy. And honestly, I just could not bring myself to care enough to do it. And the consequences stunk. It's similar to the way that oftentimes we, if you are a follower of Jesus, relate to his words to us. We hear them, it's not as though they're hard for us to understand. I mean, Jesus tells us certain things that are obvious. A part of being a Christian is believing that that faith in God is so simple, children can understand it. Children have access to God. But it's comprehensive enough and all-encompassing enough that even those who have been following Jesus for 50 years, and I don't know if any of us in this room have been, that there's still wonder and awe involved because the breadth of following Jesus and the way that he continues to change and transform us takes a lifetime. It's, It's a part of the promise of eternity with God, right? But here's the thing. Jesus Christ is the smartest man to have ever lived, yet oftentimes we relate to him as though he's not. As though he's good for saving us from our sins and, you know, making us right spiritually. But he doesn't really understand the complexity of our time, right? Now, i gotta, I got to clarify what I mean. When you hear me say he's the smartest man to ever live, you might be thinking, that's crazy. Um, because we think of smart as intellectual. So we think of Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, others who have expertise in a particular kind of field. So we take Jesus and we put him in the spiritual field. What we're not saying is Jesus knew everything about everything in his incarnation. Jesus didn't know um, how, to, how to field. I was coaching my kids' uh, football team yesterday, flag football team, assistant coach. I can't take the glory of head coach. Um, Jesus didn't know the right way to play zone defense on a football field, all right? We're not saying he was the smartest and that he had all of the information that would ever exist. Now, let me clarify something. Pre-Jesus, he existed as the eternal son. In that eternal state, he knew all things from all time. So like, we got to do a little dance here. Jesus knew all things, but in taking on a human body to become Jesus Christ, God incarnate, he limited himself. But in saying Jesus did not know all things in all fields, what we need to realize is Jesus knew everything that was essential to be fully human. Jesus knew and taught and knows currently Everything that is important for being fully human. So while he may not know some, or may not have known some perspective field, everything that he teaches us in Scripture, and that his Spirit continues to teach us, is what is essential for all people, at all times, in all places. In that sphere, he is the smartest man to have ever lived. So why don't we relate to him in that way? Well, we can think about um, various postures. all right? Why don't we listen to his words? So I've already mentioned he lived 2,000 years ago. Humanity's gotten a lot more complex. We view that this as some historical problem. But people fundamentally have not changed in our essential needs. Maybe, another reason. Maybe we think Jesus is just naive to the brokenness of the world, right? Like he was some reclusive spiritual guru who didn't understand the real brokenness that life embodies. There's some sort of authority problem. Jesus can teach us some things, but he doesn't actually have the power over the world to help us live lives that are protected from the brokenness of the world. So we can't listen. Maybe we just think he's insightful, but not smart. He's a good teacher, but not a good teacher. Maybe we think he's an incompetent boss. He holds impossible expectations over us, but then doesn't give us the resources to actually live out what his expectations are. We've all had that kind of boss, right? Or teacher, or Class TA that's over our grades. It's like, you believe these impossible things about me, but really, you can't even help me get to where you want me to be. Yep. I hope you weren't a staff member of this church. <laughs> so there's a relational problem, right? We, we relate to him in the sense that we know he has truth, but we need to protect ourselves from him because he can't give us what we need to follow him. Maybe we look at his people and we're like, that ain't working out. And while I want to admit that there are so many examples of his people falling short, to be quite honest, I look at the world and I look at some of you in our church and I see beautiful examples of Jesus transforming you we got to acknowledge it but we also got to own what is true as well but that that fact that the church can look so unlike jesus has theological roots i grew up in a church that said jesus is a savior he's not just a teacher and historically all right we got to put our like history caps on here there have been movements that tried to take out of jesus his godness and just say he's a good teacher if we follow his teaching but don't really trust him as as savior as god then everything will be fine as as humans as communities that's theological liberalism there's been a massive swing over the last hundred years to say no jesus is not a teacher he's a savior he's god which is right but guess what if we lose the fact that he's a teacher We miss out on much of his ministry and how he wants to shape us. It's both. He saves us so that he can teach us. Some of us in the church, theologically, believe that Jesus' words are just law, not life. So we hear him say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, right? Physical adultery. But then... If you even lust in your heart, you've committed the same thing. And the way that we relate to that is, oh, I should feel even worse just because I've done it in my heart. We relate to it as law, as burden. There's a sense in which that's true. But what if Jesus was trying to actually teach you and me, if you allow lustful thoughts in your heart, you're going to become a kind of human that you do not want to be. You're going to become a kind of human that doesn't find life in what I offer you. You see the different perspective there? Last thing, theologically, sometimes we relate to Jesus as though he's sovereign up there. He's going to do everything he wants to do anyway. He doesn't really care about including me in that plan. So I'm just going to live however I want to live, pretty simply. We don't take the responsibility and the honor that Jesus is trying to imbue in his people seriously. What about you? Why do you maybe hear Jesus' words and say, seem wise, but I'm not staking everything on him. Maybe you're a Christian today and you say, I'm in on Jesus as Savior, but ah, man, I can't give up the things that I have built and spent so much time building up. I can't take the risk of entrusting myself to God. Because there's one that I haven't mentioned yet, one way that we relate to Jesus that is worst of all. We believe sometimes that God simply has to bless us whether we obey Jesus' words or not. We think that the gospel is just plain old permission to sin our brains out and Jesus is big enough to force God's hand to bless us. I just want to from the front say, the world will chew you up and spit you out and Jesus will not be real to you. You will grow cynical and spiteful of Jesus if you live a life of total lack of remorse, lack of attention to sin because you think the gospel is permission to sin. I think that's honestly, being in LA in ministry for eight years, that's one of the things that pervades our view of the gospel and of grace is it's just permission to do whatever we want because God has to let us in anyway, Right? And so we're starving in our souls. And so then we're just stuck going to what the world has to offer us. And friends, in Jesus' words today, that's a foundation that will never uphold your humanness. So let's look. I want to plead with you to look at Jesus pressing the reset button on everything you think you know about who he is. To say, if he is who he says he is, and if he invites me into what he says he invites me into, I would be a fool to not rearrange everything in my life around him and his words. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus himself says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I want to encourage you today that if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus, he is offering you an invitation into such a relationship with God in his presence that you could have a kind of solidity to your joy and your peace, and the way that you could be courageous in life to give yourself away to others in love. Everything that we really long for down at bottom, Jesus can teach us to be the kind of people for whom that can be real. I want to ask a question. What was Christianity first called in the book of Acts? You hear that? Christianity was first called the way in the book of Acts. It wasn't until, I believe, chapter 13 or 16 where Christian people who followed Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. Originally, Christianity was called the way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does it mean that Jesus is the way? Now, again, a way that we can relate to his words wrongly is to just assume that believing in him gets you into the presence of God without actually believing following him matters. Jesus is both the theological way to God as his son, but he's also the practical way into his particular presence in life. Christianity was called the way in Acts 9.2. So, we said Jesus is the smartest man to have ever lived. That means Jesus is smarter than us. First big point. Jesus is smarter than you when it comes to how to lead a human life, how to build a human life. All right? Most of us have been taught we should actually trust ourselves to lead our lives. Countless students that we met a few weeks ago up on campus, when we asked them, who do you want to become? And they had a great answer that was really you know, a solid aspiration, and we said, who, how are you going to get there? They either said, I don't know, or I'll look within and trust my instincts. That is not what it means to be human. What if the answer is outside of you and me? And life is actually found in conforming to a particular way of living. Let, let me just ask really plainly. How does it go for you when you just trust yourself? Not very good. Sometimes we hit a home run and we're like, wow, the temptation is, I should trust myself every time. And God grants this, like, worldly wisdom that's not ultimate. And it's deceptive, right? Oh, my gosh. So my proposal is, either Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. We all need to be willing to rethink and rearrange everything in our lives or he isn't and doesn't merit our attention at all. We should either be Christians who are really in, or just give up the whole project. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. If Jesus isn't alive and real and in authority, we of all people are the most to be pitied. We're giving our lives for nothing, you guys. How many problems exist in yours and my life simply because no one has taught us to live? I graduated college and I didn't even know how to do laundry. You guys did, lost so much respect for me. I have learned how to do laundry since that point, all right? I still don't separate whites from darks. So all my white clothes just start looking gray and brown. It's okay. It's a sacrifice I was willing to make for efficiency. But can I suggest to you that if that's the case, all of us have something. I remember when my little sister was first asked. She was like 16. And my dad said, hey, will you order pizza for us? She had never called a pizza place to order online and almost had a panic attack because she was like, what do you mean? How do I do that? Well, you call them, ask if they have any specials, tell them what you want. Well, what do we want? What if I let... let mom down with what pizza she wants. (laughs) If we we have such a competency at the small stuff because no one ever took the time to teach us, to train us in what it simply means to be human in society, why do we think it's come so naturally to understand eternal purposes? All right. Here's Jesus' resume. He's creator. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all speak to his eternal existence as the, as the eternal son of God. He made you and me, and in fact, through him we exist and are upheld right now in this very moment. Jesus is co-sufferer. He didn't stay up there. He took on what it means to be human. He suffered every human disappointment, every human pain that you and I can go through socially being mocked, flogged, uh, disrespected, abandoned, physically enduring suffering on the cross, even going through death, through systemic injustice. He is co-sufferer with us. He understands how scary the world is. He's creator. He's co-sufferer. He's a God-worshipper. He was a faithful Jewish man when he took on humanity. He understands what it means to have doubt and to trust God in faith. When he's on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should take spiritual comfort that God knows. Jesus creator, co-sufferer, God-worshipper, and he's Lord. He has authority over everything. And he is with us in all things. He's worth listening to, but he's also worth obeying. What was Jesus' basic message then? I already mentioned this passage comes at the very end of his, I believe, longest teaching. It's from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Because in Matthew 4, Jesus starts his public ministry, and he starts by saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. It's what we talked about last week. God is available. He's here. He's accessible. Will you take hold of him? And what happened was crowds started to come to him because he spoke as one who had authority and confidence, but he also had power. Read with me Matthew 4, 23 through 25. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus went through all of Galilee. That's the region north of Jerusalem, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria even, a foreign nation that had been enemies of God's people. And they, the Syrians, brought all him the sick, those afflicted with diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. In verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. What Matthew's saying is people, all kinds of people from all kinds of places resonated in their humanity with the message and meaning and authority and love of Jesus Christ, and they gathered around him. So Jesus has a crowd, and he goes up on a little hilltop, so that they can all hear him from the mount. And it says, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And you get this message about what God's kingdom is like, who it's available to, how to take hold of it, and how to live within it. But then you get to our warning. The warning is supposed to put a sense of urgency on you and me in total love from the God of the universe to say, if we will not heed the words of Jesus, woe to us. Here's the message in that Sermon on the Mount. Your life needs to come under God's kingdom If you want to live the full, secure, impactful life you were created for. Let me say it again. Jesus' overall invitation. Your life needs to come under God's kingdom. If you want to live the full, secure, impactful life you were created for. If you will embrace God's priorities for you as his image bearer in the world, you will flourish and I understand that in all of our hearts and minds there comes up questions well what about this what about this area of my life? Define flourish the promise holds true and the spirit works out the complexities. Don't fall into the cynicism of our age that says Jesus can't be truthful because my life is complicated. So, let me give you three simple highlights. I want to first encourage you, though, before I get there. Read the Sermon on the Mount the next five days. This week. Every day this week. Start your day with 15 minutes, a little bit more buffer. If you already open your Bible every day. If you're not a Christian, take one of these Bibles and open up to Matthew 5 through 7. It's toward the back half of the Bible. Ask somebody. They'd be happy to show you. Read it every day this week. 15 minutes. 15 minutes. And read it through the lens that we're going to talk about, and you will be—you <laughs> will be so helped. Three simple highlights from this Sermon on the Mount that we cannot simply hear without obeying. The first one is God is near to everyone. God is near to everyone. We talked about it especially last week. But when Jesus gives the, these first few verses called the Beatitudes. It comes from the, the word beatus, which means blessed. What he's doing is he's saying, even those who think they're worst off to have access to God have access to him. The reason is because Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, him dying on the cross, him being buried in the tomb, and the Spirit of, of God raising him to new indestructible life, Guarantees that every single barrier has been removed between you and me having real, albeit supernatural, access to the presence of God here and now. That's the whole point of why He died and rose again for you and me, is not simply for eternity, but to change everything about the way we live here and now literally, that heaven would invade your life. And when you look to the cross, you could see none of your brokenness, none of your addiction, none of your suffering in your story, being abused or an abuser, can keep you from his compassionate, loving presence. And in the resurrection, to see what a true human life filled with the Spirit can look like, there is hope. God is accessible to Everyone, Jesus declared. My question, if you, if you aren't a Christian this morning, why would you possibly want to miss out on that? Come up, talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our prayer team. We would love to help break it down for you and, and imagine together and pray together what that could look like. But you can believe it by the power of the Spirit today, and your eyes can be opened to a new reality. God's available to everyone. Second overarching point I'm not going to hit on all the points. Don't come up and say, like, oh, you missed this part of the Sermon on the Mount, all right? We're boiling it down, admittedly. Go read it. That's why you're reading it five times this week. Second point, though, is your life flows from your heart. Your life flows from your heart. After Jesus gets the preamble done, the first thing that he says is, hey, let's talk about anger. Because anger is fundamentally a response to say, you, whoever the you is that you're angry at, have confronted my will, my desire, and I am angry. Anger is an emotion from your little kingdom being disrupted. And if you don't deal with it, you will never enter into the kingdom of God in its fullness. Right? Anger has to be given over to God. And it's as simple as saying, God, I'm angry at whoever it might be right now. I'm angry at my boss. I'm angry at my teacher. I'm angry at my spouse. I'm angry at my kid. Help me. It's a natural thing to feel anger. And in some instances, God has felt anger, all right? Something funny happened over there, you guys. But it's what you do with it that matters. What's so common in our day is to coddle the anger, is to embrace the anger, is to stoke the anger. And can I just tell you, there will never be a lack of things to be angry about in our world, ever. And there are some things that we should be angry about lest we're disconnected from reality. But what Jesus is saying is, don't you dare stoke it, embrace it, lest you become the kind of person that is a quick fuse, a quick trigger to lash out on people. Be wise with how you steward your heart because your heart is clay. God does not come into your heart by his Holy Spirit and turn it into something that is disaffected from the world. He gives you a new heart that can be molded into his kingdom. Deal with your anger. That is emotion. All right? A little sidebar. little sidebar. Emotional maturity. Like if you're like me, you might have grown up having no connection to your emotions at all. All right, you had to box them up at an early age, whether from neglect, abuse, disappointment, whatever it is, and you don't even know what you feel inside. Uh, You were wired with emotions because emotions reveal how you're really experiencing the reality around you. You can say you believe whatever you want to believe, but when you're angry, when you're sad, when you're fearful, that is how you are internally experiencing the world. Step one. Pay attention to your emotions, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. It is so common in our moment to think that if I feel my emotions deeply, I am emotionally mature. That is not what Jesus has to say. In fact, he says, do not stop there to your own peril, all right? We need to be aware of our emotions, and we need to be able to then speak truth to our emotions that they would be conformed to the world in the way that God says it is. We can talk more about that later if you want, but that's what Jesus is saying here with anger. He doesn't stop with emotion, though. He says you got to cultivate your heart's desires. He talks about lust, right? Famous passage where he says, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, Anyone who has looked upon a woman or a person with lustful intent has already done it in their heart. And then we feel bad because in our day, it's impossible to live a life without lust. It's all around us. They put it on billboards. They put it in ads. I scroll to the bottom of ESPN and I'm constantly needing to go, whoa, how can they put that there? Addiction to pornography is in my story. When I was in eighth grade, Friend gave me a CD. Five years of my life was misery. Stuff that I am ashamed to be able to still even call to mind. If I really think long enough, back to those memories. I'm getting the AV coach coach job up here. What we need to realize is not just that Jesus is telling us, don't do it in your mind, lest you're sinful. He's telling us, oppose those things in your mind. Don't let them in through your mind to your heart, lest your desires run rampant and destroy your life. It's not just you shouldn't do it. And I know Christians, we feel so much guilt and shame over um, uh, sexual sin. We should be actively bringing that to God every time, walking in the light with community, that we could be rehabilitated by grace. All right? And Jesus loves sexual sinners. But Jesus wants to transform them too. And if we're just willing to say, I've fallen into it again, but I'm not going to stay in the darkness. We are well on our way to being kingdom people. So if that's you this morning, I want to simply ask you, do you have anyone that knows you? Who knows that part of you where desire has run rampant because there cannot be a human being alienated from others, unknown from others, that is transformed. Freedom comes in the light, and the invitation of Jesus is to everyone, but it's an invitation into his people To be known. Emotion and desire have fundamental rule over your hearts. And God says, pay attention. Pay attention to it. Oppose what you know is against what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, and you will be well on your way. It's heavy. Right? So, Jesus says God is accessible, but he also says your life flows from your heart. And the third thing is, he says God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We need to know God's trustworthy if we're going to follow him. If he's not, we have no reason to obey Jesus. But when Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. If God cares about non-human persons, be things, created stuff, if he takes care of them, do you not think he'll care for you? And when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything you need will be added to your life, he's saying, trust God. Take action to follow him, and your Father in heaven will care for you. And we need help in believing that, but friends, we can't overlook it. We are crippled in our day with fear and anxiety, and the antidote, an antidote, is to know and experience how trustworthy God is. I want to give us just a few seconds to actually think about where in our life is an area where we've heard the words of Jesus, but we've not taken them into account. I'm going to give 30 seconds. If you're a Christian, you need to know that if you listen to Jesus' words and totally disregard them or don't care or laugh at your disobedience, you're on a shaky foundation. If you're not a Christian, I want to simply invite you to say why. Why not? Why would I not trust this God who says he can teach me into the fullness of what it means to be human? All right? Let's take 30 seconds now. We're going to sit in quiet, hear the buses and the cars drive by. But quiet is where we actually can begin to assess our hearts. Lord, would you, would you please guide us? Holy Spirit, we believe. Would you help us? Would you speak to us? Would you bring to the surface one simple thing? that we can walk in vulnerability with you for our transformation. All right, a couple of practical thoughts. Um, Listen, when you read the Sermon on the Mount this week, listen with the intent and the assumption that you can learn to obey everything he taught and that in that willingness to obey, the Holy Spirit will teach you what it looks like to know God more profoundly, to know yourself and your sins and weaknesses more profoundly as a means of drawing nearer to God. But don't do it alone. Second thing, you need community. There is no isolated Christian race. If, if people don't know you on a regular basis, like weekly, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? How's your faith? Where's your sins that you need to walk in the light about? What are you asking God for? Your faith will not and cannot flourish. Jesus spoke to a community sitting before him, not a bunch of isolated Christians. All right, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. That means he's smarter than us. We need to take his teaching seriously. But if we don't listen to him, his words here say our lives will crumble. I'm well aware this is this is what I would call a wisdom sermon not a comfort sermon Um, we need to be stirred up and shaken up because the world would tell us look at the amazing mansion the 21st century Los Angeles a world-class education an amazing job can give you comfort pleasure joy Accolades, image, beauty, success. And Jesus just asks us, what about the foundation? Because the world is a brutal place. We do everything we can to control it, and then a pandemic strikes. Um, Cancer hits. Injustice falls upon us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus is so aware of how the world really is and how broken it is that he says, woe to you if you choose not to build the house of your life on obedience to my words. And it's not him being cruel. It's him being so loving and compassionate. Because guess what? The bigger your house gets in the world, What needs to get bigger? The foundation, you guys. I mean, just look at the last few years. The whole Me Too movement, guess what it proved? If you allow lustful cracks in the foundation of your life, guess what you're going to do with your power? You're going to abuse people, you're going to commoditize humans. I was a part of a church. I met Jesus in a church that went from 15,000 people to crushed, collapsed, closed its doors in a single year because at the end of the day, it was more about success than Jesus and obedience to him. That little bit of pride in the foundation got to a point it might not happen right away, and that's what's so terrifying. You could go 40 years in your life and everything feels great you're a little familiar with Jesus enough to think that you're close to him but you've disobeyed him you haven't given thought to your words in the right foundation the house gets one more brick of success or beauty or image or whatever it is put on it and the foundation gives way i want to say so clearly tcla whether you are you've been here 3 weeks whether this is your first time, and I'm sorry that this is the sermon that you get to hear, but I'm not sorry. I think this is such, so needed in our moment, or you're a leader here. Merely being familiar with Jesus doesn't mean he's your foundation. Your life will crumble if you don't have a foundation that's secure. And maybe it's better to have a smaller life built within the framework of what God desires to bless you with and have it be secure and be satisfied and have healthy relationships than to build something fast and impressive to see it collapse. I'm just going to read for us the text again, and then we're going to close. It's so simple that it's almost insulting to our intellect, but we pass over it like it's nothing. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, foundations are needed. Storms will come in this life. What are you built on? Everyone who hears these words of mine, people who identify as Christians, And does them, not just here, will be like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine. And I just imagine Jesus getting to this point with tears in his eyes. Seeing people and sensing genuine and fraudulent faith. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, doesn't do them, doesn't live by them, doesn't seek to obey them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's not hearing Jesus' words. It's not hearing or knowing or being familiar with Jesus' words. Some of us have been so familiar with Jesus' words that we actually believe that we've lived them out, and we've never even tried. C.S. Lewis said, we read of spiritual efforts, and our imagination makes us believe that because we enjoy the idea of doing them, we have done them. Um, I mentioned at the beginning, I had ACL surgery 12 years ago, and I didn't keep up with my PT. I didn't obey the words that had been given to me by those who knew what they were talking about, who were smarter than me. Well, because I didn't do it, four years went by, moved down here, and got to the point where I just said, I need to have someone look at this. Went to an orthopedic surgeon and took an MRI. Said, yep, we need to go in again. Went in, removed a few things, scar tissue, inflammation. I even had a benign tumor in my knee. Had to take it out. And you want to know what I committed myself to after the pain and the disappointment of four years without a knee that works? I obeyed the experts who knew what they were talking about. Some of you, if you've been a Christian for very long and you're just jaded to Jesus, you might not need a brand new heart, but you need Him, the Holy Spirit, to go in and just cut out the areas of your heart that there's this sense of benign faith that doesn't actually do anything, that's cynical. And I want you to hear the invitation that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. He knows what you need. And if you would just hear him and obey his words, your life won't look anything like you thought it was going to look like. But that is the best thing that you could ever have because joy and peace and endurance and contentment and who knows, Spiritual authority that people could see your face and see the glow of joy in Jesus because you know he's real. If we will listen to Jesus, he will do the rest, okay? The gospel is the invitation to learn a kind of life It takes hold of grace. You don't need to hold your breath anymore. Jesus invites you to breathe deeply on the grace of being loved by a God who is near. All right? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I confess to you how frequently I hear your words, I read scripture, I think, wow, I never noticed that before. And then I jump on social media and forgot everything that I just read that should have transformed my life. Holy Spirit, would you sober us to the stakes of living a human life? And would you help us resolve two things right now, to deal with Jesus and his words, but secondly, to not do that alone. We are not strong enough in our day ever as humans to go it alone. So I pray, give us the courage to live lives that seek to obey your words, Jesus, but give us especially the courage to be vulnerable and broken in the light with you and others that we might find life and transformation. Jesus, we yearn, we we long. I do not want to be a pastor of a community that goes through motions. The city does not need a church that talks about Jesus and lives like them. The city needs to see an embassy of your kingdom and the heavenly reality available to us lived out in love and joy and power. So Holy Spirit, over the next 15 minutes, please, I beg of you, meet us. Don't let us put up walls. Don't let us live in pretense. Help us see that what flows into our lives is what is in our hearts. And let us draw near to our merciful heart surgeon. Jesus, you are worthy of our lives. You are wise. You are smart as a reverent, as that feels to say. Meet us.